Welcome to Sunday School Dropouts, the podcast where an ex-Christian and a non-believing sort of Jew read all the way through the Bible for the first time. I'm Lauren O'Neill. And I'm Nico Bekulich. And let's get biblical. So this week, we are continuing with the history books, and we're covering the book of Judges. Covering the book of Judges. And uh, (laughs) we're going to say right up front, this is definitely the most violent and disturbing book that we've covered so far. This is kind of an R-rated episode. There's violence and sexual violence, and it's gross and weird and bad. Yeah, this one has the most, like, Game of Thrones-style shit in it. So be ready for that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Strap yourselves in. I'm the ex-Christian. I was raised Presbyterian, uh, taught Sunday school for four years, and sang in the choir at church and now i'm an atheist and i'm the non-believing sort of jew um i the version of the bible that i'm reading is the oxford nrsv new revised standard version and i'm reading the niv the new international version and just to remind everybody this is not a christian bible study podcast so if you're looking for that i hope that you you know have good luck looking somewhere else because it's this is probably not the right place this, for it this would be very bad luck for you mm-hmm. so the book of Judges. Yeah, what is what is the name in Hebrew? Tell me. Uh, I don't know. Okay. Um, but You're fired. So <laughs> this has been the Sunday School Dropouts podcast. You are I've, a lovely audience. I've been Nico Bakulich Farewell. and there's no one else on the podcast. I, don't, I didn't check what it was in Hebrew, but it's named Judges because it's basically describing the, the lineage of judges or who are basically like elders mm-hmm. slash leaders, um, sometimes military commanders who rule Israel in the years after Joshua dies. Right. There's a lot of stuff to get through. There's a ton. This is a action-packed thriller with some gross special effects. Um, so we start off, basically, Joshua has just died, mm-hmm. and the Israelites are still trying to take over the last bits of Canaan that they haven't conquered yet. Uh, which I'm confused by, because I thought they did the whole tour at the end of the last book where they wiped everybody out. But whatever. Um, yeah, I mean, it seems like there's just a couple cities that they haven't gotten, and then sometimes the cities sort of bounce back. Sure. So, they're supposed to kill everyone, Mm -hmm. but they don't always do that. Right. So sometimes they end up living alongside Canaanites and Philistines, etc., and even intermarrying with them, and that, of course, tempts them into worshiping false gods. Right, which they do instantly. Instantly. After Joshua dies. Yeah. As soon as somebody leaves the room, like God takes his eyes off them for five seconds and they're back worshiping idols. Yeah. So before any actual judges arise in Israel, like the judges that the book is named after, Mm -hmm. the thing that happens immediately in the aftermath of the events of last book is that Israel immediately falls into idolatry and starts worshiping Baal and Dagon and all the other cool gods that are hanging around. Oh, I didn't read about Dagon. I read about Baal and Asherah. (laughs) Um, Dagon is the god of the Philistines. Oh, okay. Well, well, Baal is too, isn't he? I don't know. know. They've got a lot of gods going on, and they're sort of fluid at this point in time, you know? (laughs) Uh Fluid religious identity, yeah. Yeah. Um, Who's the first judge that matters? Um, The first judge, well, the first one we're going to talk about, there's a couple, like, minor ones, Mm -hmm. but then we're going to start talking about Ehud. Okay. So at this point, God has let Eglon, mm-hmm. Eglon, K- King Eglon, King Eglon of uh, Moab, okay, King Egland, take over Israel. Uh-huh. 
Um, he is a flat plane of grass with Easter eggs laid upon him. <laughs> mm-hmm. King Egg- Eggman is in charge. Goo 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 He does not meet the walrus in this book. But what happens is Israel has gotten really complacent and they're just like being subjugated by this Moabite king, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, king and- Eglon of the Moabites. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and Ehud. Uh, a left-handed man rises up, as it says in the Bible. Yes. Well, it's ironic because he is from the tribe of Benjamin, okay. which means son of my right hand. Oh. Yes. Okay. Also... I thought it was like a crypto-homo thing. Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, also, he like can conceal his sword because it's on the side that they're not expecting. That's right, which comes into play right now because uh, Ehud starts a, an insurrection against King Eggman. And in the process of that insurrection, um, he starts to, you know, like take a couple few, a few towns or whatever. And he gets a meet. He gets a sit down with the king um, and he goes to meet the king. This is Ehud now. And he hides a sword on his right hand side uh, when you're I guess you're supposed to carry a sword on your left hand side. So if that you're right so that you can draw it with your right. Yeah. Right. And they check him for weapons and it doesn't work. But um, you think that it wouldn't be that hard to like also look at the other side of him, but like whatever. It takes twice as long. Yeah, <laughs> I fair. don't have time for that. Um, so he finagles like a private audience with the Eggman himself, and the Eggman brings him into his private chamber to meet with him. Well, he says like I have a secret message for you. Ehud does, yeah. Yeah. And, so then the king sends all his dudes away, mm-hmm. and Ehud basically says i got your message for you right here draws his secret sword from the lord (laughs) and he says i'm yeah word to your mother (laughs) and stabs him and stabs him and it's really graphic the way it's described in the book it like the sword is like the sword pierces the the king's belly and the fat closes around it yes apparently he's very fat Mm -hmm. so the fat like swallows the sword yeah but and then the dirt comes out of the wound which I guess means he's cut his intestines and, oh, the, and the bile is coming out. Oh, my God. Mine did not have that. Oh, that Mine definitely did. <laughs> mine was just like uh, the sword came out of the other side. So then Ehud, after murdering this guy in a crazy way, uh, like jumps out a window or something. And the king's servants don't notice that the king is dead because they, they like, I guess, smell the smell of the bile and they notice that the door is locked. And they're like, oh, he must be using the bathroom. I'm so embarrassed. They, it says they like they wait around because they just think he's taking a giant shit. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, this is so embarrassing. Like the king is having a real time on the toilet right now. <laughs> Little do they know that his guts are all over the floor and Ehud is long gone. Long gone. Um, so that's the <laughs> that's a judge. That's what judges do. <laughs> that's what judges do. <laughs> and he basically Ehud frees the people, frees Israel and establishes peace for 80 years because he takes down uh, Egg Lord. <laughs> yeah, so, but then eventually Ehud dies. Um, then there's another judge that we don't care about. In between is 20 years of slavery, by the way. Oh, well, you know. Every time a, ju- every time a judge dies, Israel immediately forgets about God. Yes. And so some other conqueror rolls into town and takes him over. Always. And they start worshiping whoever. Always. They, I, but it's not that long. It's not like generations. It's and like, it, like, why it's like, is this such a constant temptation? <laughs> it's like eight years. 
But anyway, this is the cycle. This is the cycle of Israel. What is it about Baal that's so fucking tempting? (laughs) That's a good point is that they don't. I mean, obviously, I guess you wouldn't expect this Bible to like point out all the good stuff about Baal. But there's something. I mean, he's a weather god. He makes it rain, supposedly. (laughs) So. Dollar bills floating from the sky. Yeah. So he's the he's the patron god of strippers. (laughs) I thought that was Saint Charisma. (laughs) (laughs) Spelled with a Z. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the next judge that we're going to talk about is Deborah. Mm. You may be able to tell from her name that she is a woman, mm-hmm. which is rather remarkable. Um, and her name means bee in Hebrew, okay. like the insect. Uh, and she holds court under a date palm. It's all very <laughs> feminine and gentle. Uh-huh. Uh, but she is a strong-ass boss bitch. Mm-hmm. And she wants to defeat the Canaanite king who is in control of right. the Israelites right now. The fresh now. dude in, in charge. Um, this guy's name is Jabin. Mm-hmm. And um, so she puts this guy, Barak, in charge of the military. Um, and he's supposed to go. He's her commander in chief, you might say. You might. I um, wouldn't say that, though. Well, fair. Uh, he's going to go and, and defeat the Canaanites. Um, but he says he'll only do it. If she comes with him. Right. Like a little kid. Uh-huh. Um, and she says, fine, I will. But God is going to give the glory of this battle to a woman now because you're being a little bitch. <laughs> they have this battle. They they go and invade the Canaanite camp at night uh-huh. and they blow trumpets and the Canaanites all become confused and start attacking each other, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and God is on Deborah's side. So they win the battle. But the commander of the Canaanite army, whose name is Sisera, mm-hmm. escapes to a nearby town that his town is like on good diplomatic terms with. Right. And he moseys up to the tent of Jael, right. who is the, the town leader's wife. Yeah. Um, That's one of his malls, right? Like this is like his getaway town. His malls? Yeah, like a gangster's mall. I, I don't know. Oh, his oh his mall, like M-O-L-L. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. I thought you meant like he was in a shopping mall. Um, you know how like gangsters maintain private shopping malls? Yes. <laughs> that's what I thought you were talking yes. about. Yes. Just like Barbara Streisand. Yeah. Oh, that's true. She does. And she's a gangster. <laughs> gangster of song. <laughs> gangster of the stage. <laughs> um, So he goes to Giles' tent and she gives him some milk. And well, he's like, he's like, can I hide here? And she's like, yeah, absolutely. And he's like, I want to hide under the rug. And she's like, yeah, throw yourself under that rug. She, she's like, I'm thirsty. <laughs> and, and she gives him some milk and puts him down for a nap like a good baby boy. Uh-huh. Uh, but then she drives a tent bag through his head with a hammer. Yep. <laughs> and uh, that's the story of how the Israelites defeated Canaan that time. Yeah. And then Jael goes to the Israelites and it's like, I know you're looking for somebody. Well, he's fucking pegged to the ground <laughs> in my tent. So check this out. And um, Jael means mountain goat. Oh. So Deborah is a bee and Jael is a mountain goat because it's the land of milk and honey. Get it? Oh. Get it? Mm-hmm. Now I do. So then, you know, whatever. Deborah reigns for a while and then she dies and then they start worshiping Baal again. Again. This dude is like... Super charismatic, Bale. <laughs> He's got something. Yeah. Why don't we hear no more about him? He's got it. <laughs> <laughs> He's the, 
He's the it god. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the next judge that's important after a couple, uh, you know, stretches of slavery and brief freedom or whatever um, is Gideon. Gideon at first. So the way this story plays out is Gideon lives in a small town um, that worships Baal and Ashura. Asherah. 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 I don't yeah, know how yeah. it's pronounced. Anyway, but. some other local gods. And then Gideon decides to stand up to, to Baal. And after he's visited by God, God tells him to, an angel tells him to. Um, it's like, I've chosen you to free Israel this time. Um, and so Gideon smashes up the idol, the, the, the local idol. And, and burns the Asherah the, pole. And burns the sacred pole, of course. And then makes some sacred offerings to the Israelite God. In the morning, everybody wakes up and is like, who smashed the idol? Like, who did this? You can't do that. Who done it? <laughs> who done? Who did do this? <laughs> who done did this? <laughs> and it turns out it was Gideon, obviously. But. So they want, they like want him to die. They, they want him to die. They call for his death. Mm-hmm. And Gideon, what he says is, hey, if your God's so great, he can take care of himself. Well, his dad says that. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. So his dad says, if God's so great. If Baal is so great. Uh, you got this. Okay. His dad says, if Baal's so great, he'll stand up for himself. He'll take his re- revenge on Gideon for smashing up the idols. Uh, and the townspeople are apparently convinced by this. Yeah. <laughs> and then Gideon gets the nickname Jeru Baal, which mm-hmm. means like, let, let, Baal, let Baal contend. Like, let him do his own okay. work. Yeah. So after this, Gideon gets a rep. Everybody knows his name. And so the next step, obviously, is to take down who, whatever local king is rampaging through Israel at this particular time. Um, In this case, it's the Midianites. Mm-hmm. The tribes of Israel are really impressed with Gideon, so they send out, like, thousands of dudes to join his cause. Um, and God looks at this, and he's like, Gideon, we have to do better than this. It's not going to be a good story if you beat up on the Midianites with so many people. Um, so God, like, starts to do some cuts on the team. Yep. <laughs> at first, he's like, just send home anybody who's scared. Just ask anybody who's scared and then send the rest home. So he like cuts two thirds of the army and he's yeah. like, that's still way too many. So, all right, take the army down to the water. We're going to do a quick test to see who's worthy of being in the army of God. Yep. Uh, and down by the waterside on the rivers of Jordan, um, God tells Gideon, okay, have everybody drink from the stream. Anybody who cups their hands and drinks from their hands like a, like a God- normal person, like a goddamn human being, send them home. Anybody who laps up the water like a dog, they're your guys. They're your guys. And so 300 dudes bend down to the riverside and lap up the water with their long Israelite tongues. <laughs> and that's so we get an army of 300. Mm-hmm. Turns out that God is Frank Miller. Frank Miller, directed by <laughs> Zack Snyder. <laughs> so they, they have this awesome super fighting team of 300. They got to route this thousand strong army. It's pretty straightforward. Actually, not that straightforward at all. It's kind of complicated in the book. But the important thing is, I guess they win. They, they win. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> surprise, surprise. <laughs> uh, but they do capture these two uh, Midianite kings named Zeba and Zalmuna. Yes, they capture them and they take the crescents that were on the necks of their camels. Well, yes. Well, but before that, um, he finds out that they like killed his brothers. Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, now you've got to die. And he tells his youngest son... Like, kill them. Right. And but his the son is still a boy. Or, no. no, it's his oldest son, but he's still a boy. And he's too young and he's too afraid. And then the kings are like, look, just be a man and do it yourself. <laughs> and he does. <laughs> so props to Z and Z. 
props to ZZ Top for taking their deaths like men. <laughs> so uh, Gideon gets a million wives and has like 70 kids. Yes. And then promptly dies. <laughs> well, 70 is a lot. He was probably pretty tired. <laughs> okay. Yeah, fair enough. The purity of his essence was probably diminished being split that many times. <laughs> um, and so one of those sons is named Abimelech. Abimelech. Ab- Abimelech. He has 69 brothers. Nice. But he turns out to be a real jerk and he kills all his brothers. Uh except that the youngest one escapes. I love the way that this is described because Abimelech goes to the elders of Shechem, where he lives, and he's like... Which, by the way, Mm -hmm. is the place where Jacob's sons pulled that circumcision trick and killed everyone while their dicks were still hurting. That's right. Um, The skin the kitty ruse. Uh, uh, Abimelech goes to the elders of Shechem and says, Hey, you don't really want 70 kings, do you? Gideon was the best, and he has too many kids. I should be the one king. And then give me money. And they give him money. And what he does with the money is hire worthless and reckless fellows. <laughs> and w- with the help of these uh, of these fellows, he goes around and slaughters all his siblings, except the youngest one who escapes, obviously. Um, so that's cool. And obviously he's, you know, he's wicked. And so God eventually makes the people rise up against him. Um, and he's like always fighting back and people are dying left and right. He's the worst. It's like a civil war, basically. He commits some horrible atrocities. Like what? Uh, so the elders of Shechem, while he's out wiping up some, some people who are talking against him, Gaul, the interloper, um, while he's out wiping up Gaul and, and his cohort, the elders of Shechem gather in their town hall, in their tower to conspire against him. And Abimelech gets word of this and comes back tells his men to cut uh, branches from trees and bring them all, and he piles them at the base of the tower and burns everybody alive in the oh, tower. Oh, yeah. That, kills a thousand people. Yeah, he did do that, yeah. Um, I mean, if you consider that messed up, whatever. <laughs> I mean, that's 100% a war crime, but, you know, uh, different, different time, different, different standards. Time. Um, and so then eventually, like, during one of these rebellion battles... Uh, he's killed when a woman drops an upper millstone out of a window onto his head. <laughs> That's when he tries to pull the same trick at the next town. He, The next town, everybody hides in the tower, and he's like, you think I'm not afraid to just burn this tower to the ground and kill everybody? Somebody drops a millstone on his head. And he has his assistant. He's like, quick, kill me so that they can't say that a woman killed me. <laughs> quick, bury me with my money. Yes. Yeah, so. <laughs> uh, so he gets stabbed, but his skull is already cracked from an upper millstone. Um, so with the fall of that, is he, does he count as a judge? He seems like he was. A, I'm not sure if he counts as judge. It's unclear to me because like he sucks and he's not like God isn't on his side. So I don't know if he counts as a judge. Okay. Um, but regardless, after his death, Israel falls again and is invaded invaded by various um, somethingites. Um, and then we get to Jephthah. Jephthah is the outlaw bastard son of Gilead. Oh, isn't that cool? Yeah, it is cool. Um, so he was basically kicked out of his house because he is a bastard, um, and he went off to the to the wilderness. Okay, when we say bastard, uh-huh. what we mean is that he was he was a real real shit. He, he was a real pain in the ass. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, he was the son of a prostitute, mm-hmm. and therefore he's like a social outcast. Right. So his uh, father's proper wives kicked him out of the house. 
he goes out into the wilderness and becomes like a mercenary and gets like a band of ruffians. Together. He becomes a mighty warrior. Like, like Nimrod. Like Nimrod, a mighty warrior before the Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, so eventually the people in Israel realize that nobody remembers how to fight anymore and they're constantly being invaded. So they're like, oh, there's this Israelite that knows how to fight, except he's out in the wilderness and he's got his, a band of mercenaries. We should call him back. And so they send they send for Jephthah. They say, Jephthah, save us. Jephthah, you're our only hope. Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> Jeffy boy. <laughs> Um, so he said, he's like, oh, I'll come back. But if I come back, I'm in charge. And they're like, perfect. We don't know any better. And he comes back and he wins a a battle against the Amorites. Well, so he prays to God. Of course. And he says like, I really want to be leader of Israel. Uh And so. I need this. (laughs) If you, if you let me win this war, then I will sacrifice as a burnt offering Whatever comes out of my door to greet me when I return home. Which is so now, stupid. why the fuck would you promise this to God? What? O- the only thing that comes out to greet you is a human or a dog. <laughs> and I know that God doesn't want any dirty fucking dogs on his altar. That's true. That's true. So, yeah. He comes home and, of course, this fucking daughter who walks through the door. Right. And that's his only kid. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have any other kids. Which is also direct from Game of Thrones. Or that is to say Game of Thrones uses that as well. I think Game of Thrones did it first. I'm going to agree with you on this one. <laughs> A controversial stance, but correct. So, yeah, he gets home and he's like, oh, man, why did I do this? Of course, it was going to be my daughter. And he's, he explains the situation to his daughter. And his daughter's like, oh, you know what? You promised God. Just give me two months. And the way the Bible describes it is she takes two months off to mourn her virginity. Oh, mine says two months to roam the hills and weep with her friends because she will never be married. Mm, mine actually says bewail her virginity oh wow um yes it is it does mention that she's gonna die a virgin Mm -hmm. which we all know is is a sad fate (laughs) anyway she comes back and she's gets burnt she gets fucking sacrificed like i thought god's whole thing was like no more human sacrifices i thought that was the whole binding good point isaac that was the point like his original covenant with abraham yeah um, so I went to look this up on Wikipedia uh-huh. to see if it could tell me anything more. And the headings are like, story, commentary, sacrifice controversy. <laughs> <laughs> so apparently it's it's uh, controversial among biblical scholars too. A.K.A. Wikipedia editors. Uh, A.K.A. Wikipedia editors. But that's like the Bible of our time. Uh, uh, I just <laughs> um, so then there's a few more judges no one cares about. Mm-hmm. So I think we're like halfway through all of these judges. Um, So I think we're going to take a quick break and you're going to hear some music and we'll be right back. Okay, bye. Bye. Welcome back to Sunday School Dropouts. I'm Nico. I'm Lauren. And we are like in the middle of Judges. We are in the middle of Judges. I'm 
dual wielding a glass of wine and a glass of water. I guess it's a little too early in the Bible for that. Do you have have the stats for that? The stats? Yeah, never mind. Um, So we're somewhere in between the D and the G in Judges. Um, So (laughs) you look perplexed by that. It took me a second. I was trying to... But thank God you got there. I, well, I focused on... I thought the D meant, you know, the D. <laughs> so then I got a little distracted. Um, <laughs> but so now we're going to get to um, like the 14th or so judge uh-huh. in the book. Um, and that is Samson. Mm-hmm. And you may have heard of this famous long-haired man. So... The the Samson origin origin story is kind of nice. Yes. So his mom was unable to have children at mm-hmm. first um, until an angel appeared, who she describes as very awesome. <laughs> um, and the angel tells her, um, you'll have a son, but he has to be a Nazarite. And these are people who are, they like pledge their lives to God mm-hmm. and they're set apart and they follow like a different set of rules in the rest of society they're like ascetics yeah and they can't so they can't have anything grape related they right. can't have wine they can't have grapes they can't have raisins um they can't become ritually unclean mm-hmm. by like touching a corpse or anything like that and they can't cut their hair mm-hmm. so you probably know like samson is famous for having long hair it's because he's in this special group of like ascetic people whose lives are pledged to god yeah so they're like shaolin monks yeah, except for with long hair. Right. Um, in seven braids, apparently. I mean, I think that's just Samson's thing. I don't think all Nazarites have to have seven braids, but I don't know. Um, seven braids for seven brothers. Nice. So then um, because he's in this special class, mm-hmm. that's why God gives him super strength because mm. he's like in league with God. One thing I like when the angel visits his mom uh-huh. and she has to like convince her husband that the angel is real or whatever. Um her uh, husband asks the angel's name and he says, I will not tell you my name. It is too wonderful. <laughs> it is too wonderful. Mm-hmm. It was very awesome. <laughs> um, so there's a story about Samson's first wife and uh, it's very uh, weird. It's a weird and complicated situation. Um, it involves finding a beehive inside a lion. Oh, that part's so crazy. And it's a dream. It's, a, it's so confusing. And a quote-unquote riddle that is not a riddle. No. Uh, and anyway, she ends up dying, and he kills a thousand Philistines with a fresh donkey jawbone. I guess the fresher they are, the more deadly they are. Um, so now the Philistines have it out for him, and he's like in this special holy class, and that's when he meets Delilah. So she asks him his secret weakness, and he says it's being tied up with seven fresh thongs. Uh-huh. Um, Mine had bowstrings. Oh, really? Yes. Oh. Bowstrings that had not dried. Yeah, this had seven fresh thongs that had not dried, which sounded a little, like, sounded a little kinkier in my Bible. Mm-hmm. It's still pretty kinky. Because um, isn't this just an excuse to get his wife to tie him up with things? Well, she's not his wife. She's just his girlfriend, I think. Oh, okay. Well, regardless. Regardless. He's like, he's like. He likes being tied up. Mm -hmm. So she like hides a bunch of Philistine dudes in a room, ties him up while he's asleep. with super kinky. With these fresh thongs. It's probably being filmed unbeknownst to him Uh in like night vision goggle view. And then she's like, 
the Philistines are upon you. And he snaps the bonds. Kills if, a bunch of people. As if they were burnt by flame. Does it say he kills a bunch of people? I assume so. Because mine like doesn't mention that. It doesn't. But if you, f- if you were Samson and you found a bunch of Philistines hidden in your bedroom, how many of them would you kill? Yeah. Well, one assumes they, one assumes they died. Right. But it doesn't say that. Okay. Um, you think he might, by that point, he's so good, he just like flexes at him or just like tweaks an eyebrow like the rock? Well, I thought... <laughs> He's like, can you smell what Samson is cooking? I thought maybe... That's a that's a trademark catchphrase, darling. I'm sorry. We'll have to pay royalties. We can afford it with all this hot podcast money we're earning um, with our completely unmonetized sacrilegious <laughs> podcast. But it says that like they're hidden, but it never actually says they pop out. It says that, <laughs> okay, it says that okay, Delilah okay. yells. Sure, 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 sure. So I wasn't sure if like maybe they maybe they just stayed hidden. When they see him pop his bonds like that? Yeah. But I don't know. And then Delilah says, you lied to me and you have made a fool of me, which seems awful baldy for someone who just sicked a bunch of assassins he on her gets boyfriend. Off, he gets off on treachery. You know, that's what he loves. Dude, he does. Because then he tells her another lie uh-huh. that he needs to be tied up with seven unused new ropes. Right. So same thing happens. The hidden Philistines pop out. He snaps the bonds. And then she's like, I can't believe you. How can you say you love me when you won't even let me like betray you, betray you and kill you? Yeah. <laughs> and so then he gives her another lie about his, uh, she has to like weave his seven braids in a loom and fasten them with a pin. Yeah. He has the seven braids get like tied up in a bun and then pinned. Which is quite a elaborate hairstyle. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, that doesn't work either. But then finally, he tells her the truth. Mm-hmm. What's his breaking point? Why does he why does he say yes on the fourth time? I don't know. He like just he can't resist. Yeah. Just when there's a pretty woman involved. And he knows it's not in his best interest. He can't resist. Yeah. Um. So then he tells her that his real weakness is shaving his head, getting rid of his long hair. So she shaves his head while he's asleep. And now he's no longer a Nazarite. He's broken the Nazarite vows. Right. And so God is not with him. And so he doesn't have God-given super strength. And so the Philistines pop out and capture him mm-hmm. and gouge out his eyes and put him to work in prison, grinding something. Yeah. He's working on the mill or something like that. Uh, and then one day... <laughs> Although the Bible specifically says at that point, but his while hair, in captivity, his hair grew. His hair started growing back. So one day... They take him out to parade him around the temple so everyone can laugh at him. Mm-hmm. Um, and his hair has has grown back some by this point. And so he's like, God, give me one last super strength blast. Mm-hmm. And God does. And he pulls down the pillars of the temple so that it collapses on everyone and kills everyone. He's like, if I'm going out, I'm taking yeah. everybody with me. And so he kills it kills him and everyone there. And it says that that's, he killed more people with his death than he did while he was alive and he killed a lot of people while he was alive <laughs> so i guess this was a very busy temple um so that's the story of samson and delilah i didn't know i mean obviously that's a very famous bible story and everyone knows like his long hair is the source of his strength but i didn't know it was part of this whole like um traditional israelite subclass of pledging yourself to god nor did i i didn't know it had the the elements of like monasticism or or asceticism yeah um nor did i know it was part of this like tradition of resistance 
you know, that like Israel was a subjugated people in Canaan and then Samson is like a freedom fighter, basically. Yeah. I didn't know anything about it. Okay, so now we get to the most fucked up part. Most fucked up. This is the conclusion of Judges here. And it is by far the most fucked up thing we've read in the Bible Mm -hmm. so far. It is like some David Fincher shit. Some David Cronenberg shit. Some David Lynch. It's all the Davids. I know Mm -hmm. we haven't made it to King David yet, Mm -hmm. but his presence is being felt. Three out of four Davids. Agree. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So there's this Levite, um, and he has a concubine who leaves him and goes back to her father's house in Bethlehem. The Levite lives in Jerusalem, a.k.a. it's probably pronounced Jebus or something like that, Uh but it looks like Jebus. Jebus. So... um, he goes back and gets her, and they're traveling back to Jerusalem, mm-hmm. um, but they need to stop for the night in this town called Gibeah or Gibeah. Gibeah, yeah. We'll say it's like Judea, and we'll say Gibeah. Okay. It might be Gibeah. I like it. Um, and a stranger takes him in for the night, um, just, you know. He has to, he really struggles to find somewhere to take him in, which he implies is quite unusual in Israel. Yeah. So, but the stranger takes him in. Um, and then we get Sodom and Gomorrah part two. Yes. This is exactly the story of Lot. So the, everybody from the town comes to the door of this person that let the Levite in and let, let the Levite stay with him. And they pound on the door and they say, let your, let that stranger out. We want to have intercourse with him. We want to have sex with him. Mm-hmm. And he's like, no, take my virgin daughter instead. Right, and the host says this. Yeah, yeah. Just like in Sodom and Gomorrah. Mm-hmm. And they're like, no, we want the dude. And so the dude actually sends out his concubine. Yeah. So instead of God destroying these sinners and our heroes escaping. Yes. In this version, the Levite sends out his concubine and they gang rape her to death. Mm -hmm. And he opens up his door the next morning and she's lying on the doorstep. And he says, get up, we're leaving. And she doesn't get up because she's fucking dead. Fuck. Dude. Like, holy shit. Yeah. If that wasn't fucking gruesome enough, Mm -hmm. he takes her body back to Jerusalem, cuts it into 12 pieces, and sends a piece to each of the tribes of Israel. Mm -hmm. What the fuck? I don't know. I don't know. This is gross. So then, that's supposed to, like, galvanize the 12 tribes into action against this town of Gibeah. Right. Because they they want to get revenge for the death of this concubine, which is the Levite's fault. He's the one who fucking gave her to a murderous raping gang that yes. already explicitly said they wanted to rape somebody. Mm-hmm. But apparently we're, we're going to go to Gibeah. We're going to get all the tribes together and we're going to destroy Gibeah. Yeah. It, luckily, this is a case where all the tribes are suitably outraged. Like after that, I, I was I was like, I hope somebody isn't going to be like, well, you know, it's God's law that blah, blah, blah or whatever. But However, no, everybody's pissed. Everybody's pissed. Well, one tribe isn't. That's true. Because the tribe of Benjamin completely inexplicably takes Gibeah's side. Are, isn't Gibeah in, the, in their territory? Oh, maybe. Is it? I think so. But like... Still. Yeah, you think they would have better sense, but I think they they don't they don't believe it or something. They're sticking up for Gibeah for some reason. So, the 11 other tribes 
gather together, form this huge army, they destroy Gibeah, mm-hmm. and they defeat the Benjamites. But then we encounter this second extremely fucked up part. Because during the conquering of Gibeah and the destruction of the Benjamites, God orders the killing of every man and woman who has slept with a who has slept with a man. And also all the Israelites say, we will never take a woman of the tribe of Benjamin as a wife. It's the other way around. Oh, it's the other way around? They won't give their daughters. Right. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, they, yeah. they like swear during this war that they'll never give their daughters to the Benjamites because the Benjamites are fighting against them yeah. for the worst reason ever. <laughs> and because they've sworn this to God, they can't go back on it. Right. But then they decide, oh, well, we don't want this tribe of Israel to be wiped out completely. It's like 11 isn't as numerologically a significant number as 12 is. Yeah. So so then they take it upon themselves to find wives for the male Benjamites, which also like it's why do they make it their problem? I don't know. I don't know why they make it their problem. Why do they take responsibility for this? So in order to provide wives for the Benjamites, they have to first... Go destroy another Israelite city mm-hmm. that didn't send troops to their original war against the Benjamites. And so they are like, oh, you like broke the pact, so we'll kill you all. They kill all the men, women, and children, except for the virgins. And There's then give 400 those, virgins. Give those to the Benjamites. They give those to the Benjamites. But that's not enough. They still need more wives. So they like go to this town, Shiloh. They're having a festival. It's probably mm-hmm. Sukkot. Mm-hmm. There's girls out dancing for this festival, you know, wearing culturally appropriative headdresses and <laughs> sure. And uh, what else do you wear? Anklets, anklets, things with fringe on <laughs> things them. Things with fringe, yeah. Mm-hmm. Jorts, uh, big floppy hats. So they take these these bejorted women <laughs> and they kidnap them and they give them to the Benjamites and. If their dads get mad that their daughters were taken, mm-hmm. it's like, well, now you should be happy because now like a tribe of Israel won't die out. And like we're all Israelites. Right. And it's fine for them to be taken because they weren't given. So like the solution to this is a lack of consent. That's like the defining issue that makes this solution work. It's like there cannot be consent. Mm-hmm. And that's the end. That's the end of Judges. Yeah, that's a real messed up way to end that. Dismembered concubine, gang raped to death, and then slaughter and kidnapping of innocent women, hundreds of them, to in order to give the Benjamites wives when the Benjamites didn't deserve it. Oh. I'm disappointed in them. <laughs> I'm disappointed in myself. So we were a little baffled by the book of Judges. Mm -hmm. So we decided to call up somebody who has a lot of knowledge on this topic. His name is Chris Stroop. He's a provost, postdoctoral scholar in the history department at the University of South Florida. He's uh, written for a bunch of places like Chronicle of Higher Education, Salon, Alternate, um, Religion Dispatches. He's uh, an editor at um, the religious studies journal State Religion and Church. And he's also my co-editor on an upcoming anthology of personal essays by people who grew up Christian but have left the church. Chris, how are you? Hey, Lauren. Hey, Nico. Uh, I'm doing all right. Howdy. Thanks. Um, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, so tell us a little bit about your 
religious background, what kind of school you went to, uh, what you believe now. Just just a, a yeah, quick summary. Get, what are we getting here, Chris? <laughs> sure. Um, Give us your stats. So, you know, um, the way I, I grew up, I would say that denominational affiliation wasn't particularly emphasized by my family. We sort of got on board with that non-denominational movement. So in my early childhood, for a while, we were at a Baptist church. Then we were at, we were at a Wesleyan church. Uh, then we were at a Christian church that is the Christian church denomination. And we were there for a good while. My dad became the music minister. Before that, he had been a high school band director. Hmm. And the, the Christian schools that I went to in Indianapolis and in Colorado Springs, Colorado, they were also not particularly denominational. Uh, one of the kids that I grew up with once described our institutional environment as Baptist light, which was, I think, sort of a good description. There certainly were a lot of Baptists there, but there were a lot of people from other denominations too. And I, I would, I kind of also sort of flippantly refer to it as the quasi-ecumenism of biblical literalism, if you know what I mean. Like um, We don't know what you mean. But I will concede <laughs> that that's extremely flippant. <laughs> My particular, I mean, it, but, but it basically what I mean by that is that uh, your denominational affiliation doesn't particularly matter, but you do need to be both theologically conservative and probably also politically conservative. Mm -hmm. Religion and politics, there's almost sort of no border between them. They're almost the same thing. So um, it's a very strict conservative reading of the text. And yes, we used the NIV, Lauren. You um, did? Yes, we did. For reading now, rereading Judges for this, I read it in the New Revised Standard Version. Mm -hmm. And I like the maps. The maps remind me of the kind of maps that we had to fill in in my sophomore Bible class with this uh, particular very memorable teacher. So, and this teacher taught you about the book of Judges? Yeah. Um, judges, I mean, we went through, it was, uh, it was an Old Testament class. And since this was in the Christian tradition and that's how we were thinking about it, I'll just call it that Old Testament because uh, that's what we called it. This instructor was really uh, a trip. Um, he was a Korean War veteran, so already quite, uh, you know, already aging at this time. Let's see, I had this class in we, all? <laughs> we are all always aging, yes. We had this class from, uh, that would be 19, the 1996 to 1997 academic year. That's right. And very often he would barge into the classroom like most of the kids would already be there. He'd come in pretty much right when the class was about to start, and he would bellow out, you're all going to hell. Wow. And I'm not, not even making that up. Um, we, I mean, you know, it was kind of a joke. And he would also say that he was a, actually a really big softie, and he clearly was. He was a compassionate person. He was a charismatic person. Um, I don't know if, if he's still alive. And out of respect for him, I'm not going to mention his, his name. I'll, let's just call him Mr. Mr. X. Well, that makes him sound very <laughs> mysterious. I've heard of Professor X. <laughs> so we could call him Mr. Henderson or something. <laughs> X-y. Mr. <laughs> Henderson. Mr. Hender-X. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So, funniest thing happened on the day Carl Sagan died. And I actually, because he loved Carl Sagan for some reason. I got the sense that he somehow really thought that well, he, he respected Carl Sagan because unlike the new atheists, unlike someone like, like Richard Dawkinsville, Carl Sagan always preached a kind of rational skepticism. He, he didn't see enough evidence to believe in God. He was respectful in, in terms of dialogue with religious believers. Mm -hmm. um, 
he had some kind of like giant man crush on Carl Sagan. So who um, wouldn't? He was cry- he was crying, talking about his his death, and I got the sense that maybe he thought that somehow if he could have ever had a conversation with Carl Sagan, maybe he could have converted him mm. or something. And, mm-hmm. Or the way he would have thought it was that God would have used him as an instrument to, you know, bring bring him into this. Interesting. I don't know. He was really sad about Carl Sagan's death. Um, this wasn't the only time that I got the sense that thinking about people going to hell also upset him. Even though he would march into the classroom and bellow out, you know, "You're all going to hell!" Like pretty much every time, it was sort of a, a ritual. So, what did this guy have to say about the Book of Judges? Well, so what stands out most in my mind about Judges. From this class, I really remember he made a big deal about the story of uh, Ehud and King Eglon of Moab. The Egglord. Um, King Eglon, the Egglord, yes. <laughs> did, did you talk about him as the Egglord? <laughs> well, Eggman. maybe. Yeah. Well, I won't say either uh, well, way. Yeah, yeah well, um, that actually could work great because uh, Mr. Henderson also like really liked to make a big deal out of how fat Eglon was and described him as like egg-shaped, and he would draw this Eglon stick figure on the board. Um, so it was like a round egg shape you know, with like a little stick neck and a round head and a crown on it, and like sitting on a stool. And then he would draw these like giant rolls of fat coming up, wow. draping, drooping down over the stool. The stool. Um, it was it was kind of weird, but that's the kind of thing that really sticks in your head. I mean, this guy was funny. He was very, very likable. Um, and maybe we're all terrible people for like laughing at a fat dead Moabite. King, um, you talking about Eggman? <laughs> um, that's that's the story that most sticks in my in my mind from the Book of Judges with uh, with Mister Henderson. So, when he told the story of King Egglord and Ehud, <laughs> like how how violent was it? Because in the in the in the text itself, it's super violent. Yeah, um, he didn't balk at describing the violence. I mean, he, he described in detail uh, the reason that it mattered that Ehud, we pronounced it Ehud at that really? time, actually, instantly. Oh my yes, God. Um, but I know that's not correct pronunciation. So he would, he would talk about why it mattered that he was left-handed, right? And that's, a, that's like a theme in the book of Judges, these ambidextrous or left-handed Benjaminite warriors. Right, which is ironic because Benjamin means son of my right hand. Funny, I didn't. Yamin know that. is right in Hebrew. If they were, if it was left, it would be Ben Small. <laughs> I don't think Yamin. that we ever um, went over that. I mean, sometimes they they would do Hebrew etymologies in these classes, but I don't think we ever went over that one. It didn't stick in my mind if we did. So yeah, no, I mean, he he described it in graphic detail. It's a, it's a violent story. Uh, maybe not the most violent story in Judges, though, which is an incredibly. It is so violent. violent. Book. How was that? I mean, it's it's like Old Testament Game of Thrones. That's exactly what we've said so far. <laughs> so I, the way I grew up, we just like did not. I was never taught the super violent Bible stories. Mm-hmm. Um, I just got like the sanitized stuff. Did you get mm-hmm. more of the violent stuff? Uh, by this point, yeah, definitely. I I don't remember getting that as a little kid in Sunday school. You know, or maybe it was kind of hinted at, but certainly, uh, you know, Moses and Zipporah and the foreskin or, you know, all the various rapes and genocides and things. I mean, I don't think we got those in Sunday school classes as a small child, but in 
high school, yeah, we, we went through all of that stuff. And it became increasingly troubling to me. I mean, it was one of the things that was causing me to already ask a lot of questions, try to sort things out. A kind of a crisis of faith started for me when I was around 16 years old, and I was mm. reading through the entire Bible. And one of the issues that bothered me was that genocide could be okay when God says it yeah. is. And um, in, in general, the God of Calvinism in particular, but I mean, not only, I mean, really any sort of literalist attempted, there's no such thing as consistent literalism, although people don't, who, are, who do read the Bible as an errant don't like to hear that. Uh, but I mean, one way or another, you have to justify a lot of violence if you're going to read the Bible in, in that way. Um, God is basically good by definition, and so somehow everything that God does has to be good and just, and if you don't like it, you just have to sort of say, well, I don't really understand that, but it's all part of God's plan. Yeah. That became increasingly fishy to me. I mean, some of the stuff that happens in Judges you could probably describe as genocide, although the, the very genocidal conquest of Canaan, I guess, is more Joshua. Um, it spills over the, into judges a fair amount, I, I think. Say, I would say there are a fair, yeah. number, a fair <laughs> number of war crimes, in, maybe not including genocide, war genocide <laughs> but... Absolutely, there are war crimes in, uh, in judges, yeah, so I, I definitely concede that point. Is there anything else you want to add? Oh, yeah, I guess I maybe wanted to tell one more story about, about Mr. Henderson and, and violence. And Please do. Thinking, thinking through uh, all of that when I was uh, a teenager and getting increasingly disturbed by the genocide and war crimes and things like that in the Bible. As I said, he described himself as, as a five-point Calvinist. Um, and I don't know. Do you know what I mean by that? No, no. I've, he I've heard of the five point, ex five point exploding palm technique. <laughs> Is there anything like that? <laughs> well, I've heard can, of uh... a five paragraph essay. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. So five point Calvinists, you can, you can remember with the convenient mnemonic de device of the acronym TULIP, which you can associate with Calvinists because it's associated with right. Holland where there are always lots of, you know, Dutch reformed. Uh, so it's total depravity. Unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the of saints. <laughs> Perfect. So, I yeah, can't well, think of anyway. a religion that sounds more inviting. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of this you know, extreme view of predestination. And again, there's this idea that God is the ultimate being, so he gets to define what good is, and we kind of just have to accept right. it. Sometimes people, people would ask Mr. Henderson, like, if there was an age of, if he thought there was an age of accountability, have you heard of that concept? Yes. It sounds like a Merchant Ivory film, <laughs> the age of accountability. <laughs> yeah, we kind of meant it more in the sense of, is, is there a certain age that children have to reach before right. they are responsible for their beliefs? Uh, do they, if a child dies before the cutoff, do they get to go to heaven? The age of reason in Catholicism. So yeah, something like that. So he said that because he couldn't find any biblical evidence for that, he, he didn't think that was true. And so that meant that babies who die, and I think we even probe this a little bit further, and so even like aborted fetuses and end up in hell. But, and I mean, that's just a horrifying, horrifying belief, right? right. And he, he feels like his Calvinist logic forces him into this belief and yet, as he's explaining it, again, he's, he's tearing up. Like, he's obviously disturbed. Wow. And tears are running down his face, but he ha feels like he has to 
accept this. And so he says, this is what he thinks is true according to the Bible. There's, there's something going on below the surface there. Yeah. You know, for me, eventually that kind of stuff just, um, I, couldn't, I couldn't do it. But people are, uh, many people are very afraid to question or challenge at all. So they stay within these, these narrow boxes. And I, but I think that sometimes, particularly for someone who really tries to think things through, like Mr. Henderson did, it takes a toll. Um, when I think back to, to my Christian school days, I think a lot of the beliefs that I was taught are harmful, um, you know, bad for society, bad for the individual but there are a lot of really good people there. So I'm very ambivalent. Mm -hmm. You know, good people and intelligent people can have very bad beliefs and be very misguided. So, you know, I don't want to just sort of look back at this and, and condemn everything. It's sort of how do I process and work through this experience and be fair to uh, people like Mr. Henderson, who I, I think was a very good-hearted person. Yeah, who had some really terrifying beliefs. Yeah, that's, that's the question, isn't it? <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking to us. Yeah, that was great. Thank you. Um, thank you. It's, it's great to be and here. And where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at C underscore Stroop. And um, I also have an academia.edu page. You can Google me and find if you want to download some of my academic articles. And... Um, yeah, most of my bylines for popular writing are at religion, religion Dispatches. So if you want to see some things I've written more about contemporary religion and politics, you can go there. And what are, what are USF? Are you, are you dolphins? Are you gators? Who should we be cheering for? <laughs> uh, we're the bulls. The bulls. The bulls? Naturally. That's not Floridian. Yeah, which like, uh, well, I don't know. Um, <laughs> you, won't, you won't speak to that. I was going to say firstborn unblemished bulls. Yeah, so... <laughs> <laughs> red heifers <laughs> yeah. okay well it's been it's been a pleasure having you chris thanks it's, it's been a pleasure to be on the podcast and i really i really do love it so um keep up the and good we work. love you <laughs> okay <laughs> i love you too <laughs> Yay. Yay. <laughs> okay bye-bye all right good night nico good night, night. Lauren. That was Chris Stroop, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you enjoyed that. I certainly did. Um, so that pretty much wraps it up for the Book of Judges. But of course, what would an episode be without us? RTB. You know what I'm talking about, rating that book. <laughs> Hashtag RTB. Mm -hmm. So what do you think of this one, Lauren? I was just in horror. Mm-hmm. I was very disturbed. I'm going to give this one one out of six upper millstones. I got to give it that one because there was a lot of plot. Uh-huh. Like this, like stuff happened. That's true. We moved forward in this episode. That's true. Um, but the violence, especially the sexual violence against women was atrocious. And I, my jaw is still on the floor. Mm -hmm. And your donkey jaw. Yeah, my donkey jawbone is still on the floor. After you killed a thousand people with it. Yeah. Uh, I can't deal with this book, so I'm giving it a low rating. <laughs> understood, understood. I am, I'm actually going to rate it a little more charitably than you did. I'm going to give it 10 out of 15 worthless and reckless fellows. What? <laughs> 10 out of 15? Mm -hmm. uh, I think 
that the plot and the and the gore and everything was actually pretty interesting. Uh, although, obviously, the last story sort of the sticks last... out as like uh, a real uncomfortable outlier. Yes. Although I'm heartened at least a, a little by the fact that you know it wasn't like this just happened and then it was okay. You know, it was it was they treat it like a horrible crime. That well, you... they treat the murder of the concubine like a horrible crime. That's true. They don't treat the subsequent hundreds of kidnappings and rapes yes. as crimes. That's true. They don't. I am, you know, I'm not, I don't want to judge it too much on its moral contents or they, you know. Why? Its name is Judges. <laughs> judge all you want. An excellent point. But I'd rather judge it, uh, in this case, just the way, just when I read it, you know, I was just like, I was more interested in the, in the, in the story than in some of the other books. Sure. It had a lot of good Bible stuff. I thought the, all the Samson stuff was really cool. Very strange, like old, super old-timey superhero stuff. Yep. Um, anyway, 10 out of 15. I hope that doesn't offend you too too harshly. That's fine. That's whatever. <laughs> okay. That will wrap it for today's... On that note, <laughs> we're getting a divorce. <laughs> Uh-oh. I'll see you in court, baby. <laughs> okay. We are going to leave... Uh, not for forever, though, just for a week. As always, you can find out more about the show at our website, sundayschooldropouts.lol. That's sundayschooldropouts.lol. Alternatively, you can, f or in addition, frankly, frankly. And slash or. This is a, a both and podcast. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but we'll roll with it because you can follow us on Twitter at sunschooldrop. We're also on Facebook if you look up Sunday School Dropouts. Um, we have a, an email address. Yes, you can send us email to contact at sundayschooldropouts.lol. Thank you to Elise Carlton for our beautiful logo. Of course. And thank you to Nico for all our music. And you're welcome. And if you want to rate and review us on iTunes, it's super, super helpful. It is extremely helpful. We're already on the new and noteworthy section in the arts category, thanks to your ratings and reviews and... It's probably the number one way that you can help other people find the show and enjoy it or send us hate mail. <laughs> we still haven't gotten any hate mail, but we're looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So if you just want to go on there and toss us, I don't know, five out of five worthless and reckless fellows. You know, whatever if, you want. If you want. So we're going to stop groveling for your reviews and bid you adieus. <laughs> and we will see you next Sunday. We'll see you next Sunday. Bye. Bye.